Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined from the Netherlands by Bonnie Brennan, who is an Angular Google developer expert, speaker, consultant, and the founder of AngularNation.net. Bonnie Brennan, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you. It's good to be here. So as you reflect back on your time in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of well-maintained software? Uh, I would say probably the biggest one is the ability to pivot, keeping things lean and clean so that you can, because we all learn as we grow, hopefully. Uh, We all look back at code that we wrote a couple years ago, horrified because we're so much better now, but we need to be able to update things as we go. and, And I've seen a lot of companies really struggling with that. When you say making sure that things are lean in a way that you can pivot, are are there some other uh, exercises or things you feel like help ensure the quality of the code or are there ways to make that something more tangible? Like when you look at some code, you say, oh, that's something we can definitely change in the future. Is there some metrics or approaches that you typically look at? Well, the biggest one, I think, and the easiest one uh, that I've that I've told people over and over and, and I found really helps is, especially when, when we're dealing with Angular, is to, to create a lot of modules uh, to make sure to keep, and, and not even just specifically Angular, but I mean, just to keep those files small and, uh, you know, don't put 1,500 or 5,000 lines of code in one file because it just gets really bloated. Uh, and to be able, you know, sometimes we get uh, so many things patched together that we can't update because, you know, something's depending on something old and and uh, that's really what we're trying to avoid. So if you keep things small and and really build in the ability to pivot in the future when you learn new things, you know, that we might not always use the same languages or tools that we do now. And we need to be able to uh, change things as we go and not have these big, huge uh, things that we can't, that we can't change. What do you think leads to those? Do you think teams set out to intentionally build large, safe files? Or do you feel like there's, there's a, there's something that happens that kind of ends up resulting in that as a kind of an outcome? Yeah, I, I see a lot, and 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 it happened to me too. Uh, you know, first I was a junior developer, and I was just kind of stumbling along, trying to figure everything out, right, for a while. Uh, and then I became a senior developer, and I got a little more practice, and I knew how to solve problems, and I got very good at tasks and problem solving, and and it was fun for me, right? But I was just I was solving each task as it came across my desk, and I wasn't really looking at the big picture. And and it's okay if I wasn't, but someone in every team, I think, needs to be looking at the big picture and kind of keeping an eye on the overall, you know, because it's like I found uh, more and more with with working with teams that, you know, we talk about dry, and uh, this is something that I've been teaching a lot in the architect training that it's easy to look at your own code and keep it dry. And we know that we, you know, we don't want to repeat ourselves in our own code. But once you get to the architect level and you're looking at the whole team or the whole company, right, then everybody's code needs to be dry and you have to coordinate that and and, and learn to work with that. So that's where these uh, patterns and tools get to be more helpful. Just so for, for clarification, for those that might not be familiar with uh, dry, what does that, what does that mean? Don't repeat yourself. Ah, so, so this is really where, you know, we're, we're, we're coming along and we're writing code and writing code. And then, you know, for, no matter what language you're in, you know, you, you find that you're repeating yourself and that's where you got to make it dynamic. And that's where the fun comes in. And I think that's where you go from, from beginner to expert is, is creating more dynamic, you know, more business logic, more smart code so that you're not rewriting things. I mean, that's kind of how I see developing, right? That's like what it means to be a developer to, to, figure out how to do that. So 
as we get better at that, then we have to be able to pivot and and evolve our code. And sometimes I think the reason why things get kind of big and messy is because when you have a team of developers that's just task oriented, right? Sometimes there's not a lot, and especially if they're really stressed and pushed a lot, like let's roll out these features and hurry up, get this done, get this done. We've got all these deadlines and they're not, you know, stepping back, like, like uh, my friend Tracy Lee said, slowing down to speed up, right? Sometimes you have to kind of look at what you're doing as a team and, and look for ways to improve. And if you don't have time to do that, or if you're not collaborating as a team, everybody's just working on their own tasks. And that's how you just, you just kind of write more code and more code and more code. And you don't think about the future. And I was like that for years. I mean, I was a senior developer and I wasn't really thinking about that. And it wasn't until I kind of started to evolve into architect that I started thinking more about the future. You know, as you think, reflect on the earlier part of your career there where, you know, I talked to a number of people and I have people even on my own team that struggle with that feeling like there's not enough time. Like, oh, maybe in the future there'll be more time somewhere. But oftentimes if, uh, that there, there needs to be an intentional approach to kind of set aside time or to just include that time into the estimate of the work that you're doing. Do you feel like there is a clear transition point where like, aha, I don't have to ask for permission to get the extra time or I need to just think about how I'm estimating how I'm going to approach these, like how much it might take me to do these things? Well, that's tricky because that's really, that speaks so much to team culture a lot. You know, that's really important because that's a management thing where, where I've, I've been on teams where I really feel like quality matters. And they really, we, you know, we all talk about like what we want this to do and then we've got time. And then I've been on other teams where it's like, you know, go, 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 go. And, and it's very stressful. And so I think the more stress that the developers are under, the, the more they just kind of push those, those, they just need to perform. Right. And if you can slow down and, and let the developers, you know, I, I try to say like, I don't want to write code very, very fast. I want to write really good code because in the long run, it's actually faster for me to take my time and get this working the way I want it than just keep on hard coding stuff because it's easier. And one of the things I think that's, I think it's kind of tricky because I, you know, I've, I've been consulting for a couple of years and I feel like Mary Poppins sometimes going from one team to another and teaching, right? And, and it's, it's been a great opportunity to see how different teams work. And one of the things that I've seen, it's it's kind of, it's not even about code, but it's just kind of a little trick to save money, I think, is some teams have good support around the team where they have project managers, scrum masters, you know, administrative support so that they have people tracking tasks, following up on emails with, you know, requirements or questions or anything like that. So the developers don't have to focus on that. And when you have that kind of support around the development team, I think that's really beautiful um, because the developers can really focus on what they're trying to do. And when sometimes in some teams, you know, there's uh, cost cutting and, and what ends up happening is you lose that support and the developers are actually doing all of that work themselves. And so I think that raises the stress and kind of makes them wear a lot of different hats and they're they're just trying to solve problems. But if the developers get a chance, hopefully the team culture allows them to slow down and and produce really good code. Do you find yourself using the metaphor technical debt at all in your day-to-day work? Oh yeah, for sure. It's it's a it 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 goes back to team culture, like I said, because tech debt is it's a big problem. And I mean, it's 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 there. Like every team is going to have tech debt, and and I think that's natural. And and it's it's got to be a balance because it can't always be perfect because somebody's paying for the development team, right? And so you 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 have a responsibility to have this you know productivity. Uh, but also, you know, if you have too much tech debt, then and I've seen teams where I feel like I'm just drowning because 
there's everything I touch is just going to break something else. And it's just so brittle and, and it really becomes a problem. And if you can keep up with the latest updates and keep up with the latest, I mean, if you have that flexibility in your team, if you're, if you're lucky enough to work on a team where you can, you know, do a proof of concept for this latest thing that came out and see whether or not it's going to work. And then what happens is you get to take advantage of all these new features and the latest functionality. And, and, you know, if you're stuck with really old code that you can't update, then you don't get to have these new features that are coming out. So you're, you're missing out on that, but you know, it's a balance because you, it can't always be perfect all the time because you've got to get those features out. So you kind of have to walk the line there. How would you define tech? You know, you're, it sounds like you're touching on uh, dependencies and like versions of things as being one form of technical debt. Are there other types of technical debt that you've, that you was something you would call technical debt versus just say code you disagree with or bad code? I, I would say technical debt is anything that I know I don't like, like it's wor- it, it's good enough for right now and it works, but I, but I think I could do it better. Right. And like, I, I've done a lot of training and I work with a lot of junior developers and I try to tell them like, tell me, like, if you see code that you like, you got it working, but you don't, you don't really like the way it flows, then show me and let's talk about that and uh, see if we can find a better way to do it. So it's kind of anything where I put a I put a tick and say like I need to come back to that and I just feel like I need to you know it's not like I want it to be. What's your kind of a take on how much documentation should be written within the code versus in maybe external resources like a wiki or whatever types of tools documentation type tools? That's such a good question. It's another balance, Robbie, because uh, too much documentation is overwhelming and it's too much to read. So what I really like to try to do uh, is, and again, I work with a lot of junior developers and I do a lot of training. And so I really like to have my own code very, very simple to read. And I try to make it kind of intuitive. And I put code, not even so much for myself, but just comments for anybody else that I'm working with. Usually it actually does help me later if I come along six months later and go, what was that for? But I try to put comments in there just to kind of make it more welcoming and, and make it you know, so that it's not so intimidating if there's anything kind of mysterious, because I've seen some code that there are some developers that I've worked with that are very talented and they write kind of magical code and it's really nice code. However, it's confusing. So I I try to make my code not confusing. Like I I try to intentionally make it not confusing so that it doesn't need a lot of documentation because it's the same thing with, with, when I was doing a lot of UI design, we actually had, I was working at a big company and, and they had budgeted time for training the users in every project. And I always said, no, we don't need that. And then in the beginning, they were like, no, we have to do that for every project. But what I what I said was, I really want my UIs to be so intuitive. And like, we're going to use hover tool tips for any kind of icons and just really make it so easy for them to use that they don't need training. And after a couple projects, they let me get away with it because mm-hmm. I was like, you know, let's just make it so easy for the users that we don't need a lot of documentation. And I think the same goes for the developers. Like, I really want my code to be super easy for anyone to follow behind me. What are, you know, what are some of the, like the hurdles that you've personally encountered as a software developer when you've joined in projects that have been around for a while, like a, like an older legacy code base? Well, early on in, (laughs) early on, I think because I, I, you know, I had imposter syndrome and, uh, and I was the only girl usually on the team. Right. And I wasn't that confident. But I cared a lot and I was keeping up with, uh, especially with Angular, I, I really have a, a soft spot for Angular. And so I was using Angular and kind of embracing that early on. But I had a hard time getting people to take me seriously because they didn't think I know what I was talking about. Hmm. But uh, 
over, you know, time will tell because I, I would start writing cool stuff and then they'd look at my code and go, oh, that's cool. How'd you do that? And so I kind of got more confidence over time and that helped a lot. But I think when I was starting out, I really was in a lot of situations where I was maintaining old code that someone else wrote. And that's hard. I mean, my first experience with Ruby on Rails was uh, some, I was doing some PHP WordPress stuff and my employer bought a website that was written in Ruby on Rails and uh, none of us knew how to write it. And so they were looking for somebody on with Ruby on Rails. And I was like, well, let me just see if I, I went and got a book and said, let me see if I can figure it out because we just need to make a couple of changes. And doing a hello world out of a book is much, much easier than figuring out somebody else's code that they wrote. Like, like it's very hard to reverse engineer something while you're learning it. So that's super, super challenging. And I think when, I think it's a privilege and a joy when we can actually write, you know, greenfield code and we get to go out and write our own code from scratch. Like that's so beautiful and it's nice, but you know, when companies have I mean, companies have invested a lot and I know there's always turnover, right? So when companies have all of this code that they've already paid for, they don't want to rewrite it because somebody came in and wanted something different. They, so you have to, you know, you have to go with what, with what your, uh, what your company needs. So sometimes you have to maintain that old code. It's tricky. Indeed. Yeah. That's, I've, that's pretty much been my, uh, my experience for most of my career is working on older code bases. And I have, I actually have a, the way I look at it is I'm actually really nervous about working on Greenfield projects. I feel like there's too many choices to make early on. Um, I like, I like the kind of archeologist approach to having to make sense of like, what were they thinking back then, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago when the code first started getting developed by those initial developers. So, and I think most developers don't usually get that privilege of getting to work on a new project, despite probably in their, you know, maybe if they're going through computer science classes or however they're learning through boot camps or, picking up books and, and figuring it out on them, their, their own. But like a lot of documentation and books are about learning how to build that hello world experience or building some mm-hmm. example application. And you're like, okay, I'm getting, you're, you're building up like these building blocks and you're, and something's kind of guiding you. And then one day you show up and you're like, whoa, like this is like hundred times the size of a normal application I've ever built myself. Where do, where do I even begin to make, make sense of this whole space? So interesting. I really like your archaeology example because uh, it just kind of makes it sound fun. And it is, it's like you, you got to kind of peel back these layers and trace it from one function to the next to figure out like, where is this coming from and where is this happening? And I really spent a lot of time in my early career doing like reverse engineering things to edit something that somebody else wrote that doesn't work here anymore. And I think that really made me that's kind of why I want to make my code so readable all the time, especially like function names and table names. Like I wanted to make sense because I worked on a, it was like that Ruby on rails one, like the table name was like T 74. What does that even mean? What do I do with that? So I really like to make things that those naming conventions help a lot, but you're right. It is fun. I know that you started out as a self-taught single mom or transition into being now a international conference speaker, expert consultant, what prompted you to start going down this this path of your career? Uh, well, when I was younger, uh, I just started out, you know, just kind of got the first job I could get. I was an entry level temp, and I worked my way up to executive secretary. And and I just really, I was working really hard, and I wasn't making very much money at all. And so I I kind of hit that glass ceiling, and there wasn't anywhere else that I could go because I I wasn't skilled labor. And so I took a couple of web design courses, and then I just kind of ran ran with it from there. And once I started writing code, uh, really I I had a lot more opportunity, and it helped me a lot. This is why I I 
went with my kids and, and started trying to help others because, you know, I didn't start coding until I was, you know, in my thirties. And I, I was just thinking so much like, man, I wish I had learned how to do this when I was 20. <laughs> like I was broke all those years and I didn't have to live like that. So I really, uh, really love teaching others and trying to help people because it's such an, it's such an equalizer, you know, no matter what background you come from, if you're good at code, like that can actually bring you out of poverty and, and, and open up so many doors. So I think teaching is just like, I can help people and it doesn't cost me any money at all. I love it. That's awesome. You know, as you started saw that as maybe a career option for yourself. And when you're a junior developer, did you already have this idea of where you, a clear vision for you, where you would like to see yourself like now? Is there, does, or did you, are you finding yourself in a completely different space than you probably would have predicted five, 10 plus years ago? I, if I, I would be shocked. I had no idea. Uh, first of all, public speaking, like, forget it. I did not see that coming. I was very uncomfortable. The only reason, Robbie, I got to be honest with you. <laughs> the only reason I started my meetup in Houston is because I was looking for somebody smarter than me to help me with my Angular when I got stuck. Like, I wanted a mentor because I was always, like, running into problems. And I wanted, like, a senior developer because I, I couldn't, you know, Angular was so new back then. And I was having a hard time finding other people who were using it. And so I really wanted other people to help me. And, uh, and so this whole getting into the community, like it was quite by accident, completely by accident. I wouldn't do anything different though. I love it. Hi there. Do you know someone who might be looking for assistance with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon would love to meet them. We're offering a $1,000 referral bonus. Send someone our way, and if they sign up for services with Planet Argon, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And in return, you'll get a check for $1,000 in the mail, just for knowing the right person. Hop on over to planetargon.com referrals for more information and to refer someone our way. That's planetargon.com referrals. Thanks. Let's talk a little bit about your uh, AngularNation.net. Can you share a little bit about what prompted you to start it and kind of like who is the kind of core audience for that? Yeah. So uh, I was speaking at conferences a lot, right? And and the big thing that I learned that uh, there were so many things that I, that I that kind of learned along the way that I didn't even expect. And one of them was, you know, when I first started working with Angular and I was kind of, you know, working with teams in Houston, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, I was reading the docs and stumbling through it and figuring it out. And, and there was some pain along the way where... I got stuck sometimes for one time I was stuck for weeks, you know, and my boss is in the middle of an app and, and I'm the senior Angular developer and he's going, when is it going to be done? And I said, I, I, I don't know how to fix it. You know, I'm like, this is my job. I don't know what I'm doing. Right. So uh, once I once I started getting involved in the community and I started going to these conferences, like I was amazed. I was really flabbergasted at how kind and sweet these people were and how humble they were. And, and once I start, you know, there's this camaraderie, like once you've been singing karaoke with these people, they're not so scary and intimidating. And it was so much easier for me to reach out to people on, on Twitter or online and, and ask for help once, you know, like I broke that, that, you know, once we hung out in person, right. It was just so much different and I wasn't scared of them anymore. And so the more I traveled and I got to meet these people and all these uh, GDEs and I just really love them. What happened back at the at the office was 
anytime I got stuck, like I never got stuck anymore because I could just pick up the phone. And if you think about, you know, you're going along, you're writing all this code and then you get stuck, which happens to all of us. This is normal, right? Then if you have someone that you can just immediately pick up the phone and call, and then you're never going to be stuck for more than a day, then imagine what you could do. Right. And so this just really opened up a lot of doors for me. And so I have this confidence and I was very open with my clients, like, especially when I started consulting, like, I'm not telling you that I know everything there is to know about Angular because I certainly don't. I don't say that. Right. But I know all these other people. And so I can ask questions and I, and I have over the years. Uh, and so I've learned so much. And the thing is, what I find is I'm talking to people in the audience and, and you know, people at these conferences and they come up to me and because I try to be kind of approachable and, you know, kind of silly and, and, uh, and what I find is that they think they're beginners. They they approach me like they're beginners. They're very, you know, kind of shy. And uh, then when they start talking and asking questions, they're actually not beginners. They're like architects and team leads and they're and they're asking really advanced questions. So so when I find people that uh, really, you know, like they are leading, a lot, especially large teams, I've found some people in enterprise environments that like they're running, you know, 20 other Angular developers and 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 like they don't have anyone. So my advice to them always is, you should be more involved in the community. You should be like talking to other architects and they go, oh no, not me. You know, so, so I had this, uh, this Angular Nation domain actually was from Jeff Welpley originally. He bought it and he was going to do something with it. He got busy and then he gave it to me and I didn't know what to do with it. Like I thought it was cool. It sounds cool. Angular Nation, you know, but I didn't know I wanted like a stack overflow Reddit kind of thing where we can ask each other questions. And, but I really wanted to have that kind of cozy, you know, because the internet's not a very nice place sometimes and people are, and so I really like, how do I, how do I grab that, that cozy feeling? Right. Uh, and I struggled with that for a long time because I didn't want to just create another social network. Like I don't have time, you know, I have other stuff going on. Uh, and then I came across the mighty networks, uh, platform, the software that I really like. that's kind of this online community and it's really designed around making this like welcoming platform and just like encouraging people to, uh, to participate. So it's a private community, but it's only private because we have a code of conduct. So everybody can join. All you need is an email address and you come and you, and you sign up. And what we do is we have channels and we have topics and we kind of try to have discussions. We have a lot of uh, local community meetups that are, Mm. you know, cross posting there so that we can just talk. And I started this actually, I didn't know about coronavirus when I started this, but we need it now more than ever because like, I really, I love the other people and I feel like it's not just about socializing because I'm actually a better developer when I'm collaborating with all these other developers, right? All these discussions are so helpful, but th- there's something like sinister that's happened to our social media, you know, and, and I don't want to go all political, but I mean, have you seen, there's this documentary uh, that I want to plug on Netflix that just came out called The Social Dilemma. Have you seen this? Yeah, I watched it last week. Yes, Right. <laughs> So this is like exactly my point. And anyone who hasn't seen that, please go watch it because it just talks about <clears throat> the influence, uh, the harmful influence, right, of these platforms and and how powerful they are and what they're doing to our society. And it's really sad and scary. And so the thing is that, you know, I've really, my Twitter used to be completely angular and, and that's what I use to keep up with my friends and follow the community. And there's so much other stuff now that's being posted there. And, you know, there's... Um, you know, politics and Black Lives Matter and coronavirus. And these issues are very important to me and I really care, right? But that's like, it it just makes it so stressful. So I feel very, and I think that's kind of how I I keep my sanity in in this, you know, there's a lot of scary stuff going on in the world and really stressful stuff. And I really, um, I do a lot of uh, meditation and mindfulness and I 
I grow plants and I, you know, I have a, a I do some gardening and, and just try to, to be mindful and, and find inner peace. But I really do care about this stuff. And, and part of me keeping myself kind of sane is uh, gratitude, right? I have to find things to be grateful for. And I do have so much to be grateful for in my life. Uh, and so I try to remind myself. And one of the things that I have to be grateful for is that I'm a software developer because right now the economy is really a lot of people are out of work. And so I feel very lucky to have the job that I have, especially because everybody's working remote. Like, so it's good for me to be able to kind of go off and focus on my job and focus on my work and feel like I can just do that for a while and be distracted from the crazy stuff that's going on in the world. But I can't do that anymore with social media because the my timeline is like all kinds of crazy. So Angular Nation is a place where we just focus on Angular. We only talk about Angular and it's all Angular. It's very, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a private platform, but it's only because, you know, we have this code of conduct. Um, it's free and we just want people to come in and be nice and ask questions. And the only rule really, I mean, other than don't spam us, you know, don't like come and spam us with advertising, but just people are coming in and posting questions and other people will help and, and uh, we collaborate and post cool stuff that we find. And that's just what it's there for. And then I also have uh, uh, architect training that I've started doing online. So you can find that also in Angular Nation. Interesting. The, um, so it's, is, it, is the content publicly accessible or is it primarily once you log in, then you get access to content? You have to log in, but it's free. And all you need is an email address. And, you know, I, I see like, I, I have a pet peeve about spam. You know, we have so much um, email marketing and, and I just don't like it. And I don't, so the, the um, Mighty Networks has, you can actually have control over all your own notifications. Hmm. So you don't get spam. So you can sign up for channels. And if there's, if there's a topic that you're interested in, then you can get a notification. Or if you don't like notifications, just shut it all off, you know, cause I don't like all that. I, like, I don't want all those emails, you know? So, so you just put in your email address, but it, you're not going to get spammed. I'm not going to like send you a bunch of stuff. You can have total control over the market or the, um, not marketing the, uh, notifications. And, uh, and really, I just really wanted to have a place for the community to talk to each other. You know, it's not, it's not meant to be like, Hey, we're a bunch of experts that are giving you advice. It's really like, this is for the community to, to really come in the room. If you're not an expert, nobody's ever heard of you. Like, that's okay. You're welcome. Just come in and post. If it's a question that you think is a beginner question, that's totally allowed. It's absolutely allowed. And also we have some channels in other languages, Robbie. How cool is that? Oh, that is awesome. I've been, um, it's interesting. I right? work on a couple of open source projects and it's been something I've been thinking about because I know that all of it's all written in English, all the documentation and everything, but it's used by people around the planet. And I'm like, why is this like something I need to really probably dig into at some point and start making those kind of updates to start making sure it's even more accessible, I think. So I think that's, that's, that's rather, that's really important. I think to, to have that, to be able to provide that to your community. Also, I think it, you know, really good advice. And, you know, as you said, you kind of selfishly did it so that you had fostered community so for your own benefit in a way and i'm thinking back to some of my own my own experiences like i was participating a lot in like i, I helped form like a linux user group a long time ago just so i had other people to talk about linux stuff back in like the late 90s early 2000s and i you know participated in ruby user groups and those ended up being all the people that i initially hired because I, they were the only people that i knew that knew how to use ruby and ruby on rails and i was like okay i'm gonna hire you because you know how to do it because there was it was like a new thing and so and then you get people that kind of make career shifts later in life. And then they're thinking, well, I'm not like, 
I like, I always wonder if people are thinking, and I talk about some junior developers that I've that I've either employed or have like had as interns at times where they feel a little intimidated about the community because like, well, those are the people that like really love and breathe this stuff. I'm kind of like doing this more as like a career journey. And I'm like, no, no, no. Like, so a lot of them are too. And it's not like, it's not just like a bunch of hobbyists that just get paid to do programming. It's like, there's, yeah, we can also this have will help that- your job. You, you'll have people to reach out to. And then there's, I think there's always that like, well, if, if I talk to other people about this technical problem, is that going to look bad on me from like my boss or mother company? Cause I don't know how to do it, but I'm like, most of the job is uh, spent Googling or searching online for, uh, for answers, looking at Stack Overflow. I mean, it's, I think we just had some interns come in recently and they just wrapped up like last week. And one of the things that they they really appreciate. They always seem to really appreciate is when they're doing some pairing or shadowing of a more experienced developer and just seeing how they solve problems and going, "Oh, you use Stack Overflow too? Wait, you're copying, pasting things and trying to see if this works as well." But you know, and be like, "You don't just know everything in your head." And they're like, "No, like, <laughs> like, like, I've it, there's a lot of things that you have in your head, but you also learn how to like search better and how do you like look up things differently." And so. I think it is important, as you're saying, to help foster that community and find something. And if you're yeah. in the Angular world, you got AngularNation.net there for you. Let's, I want to quickly d- dig a little bit into process. Uh, in particular, so you mentioned like there's kind of maintenance or refactoring type tasks for technical debt. Uh, what are what are some ways that you've seen work well for t- teams you've been a part of to organize that work and make sure that you find and prioritize time to work on those things amongst knowing that the the product team is probably looking to get some new features or some bug fixes out that's specifically, but for advocating for your own well-being in terms of improving things. I have found that really, it, it's kind of like I said earlier, to have uh, to have some a support person on the team who's not a developer, right? Who can kind of drive those tasks and manage those tasks and, you know, manage expectations uh, and set those expectations and not necessarily having the developers do that because I actually, it was, I worked on a team years ago and there was this, this woman who uh, worked on the team with us and she wasn't a developer, but she was kind of scary, Robbie, because she was not like, she was very, you know, stern. And when the team was in the middle of a sprint, she wouldn't let anyone talk to them. And I was like, like I, at the, at the time I wasn't on the team and I was trying to talk to somebody on the team and she was like, nope, sorry, they can't be disturbed right now. They're busy. And I was like, whoa, whoa, wow, wow. You know, but then later I actually joined the team and she, she was protecting all of us and letting us focus. And it was the most amazing thing because we were not to be disturbed. And like, I've had teams where, you know, I might be in a meeting every hour and I can't, you know, I've got all these tasks, but I'm in meetings every other hour or stand up last an hour. And like we have all these meetings and it's really hard to focus. And so when you have someone who's kind of paying attention to the mental health and fitness of the developers and making sure that they have, you know, like we don't, we don't bother them in the afternoons because that's when their heads down and coding or that kind of thing. If you have, I mean, you have to have these expectations. I think you have to care about the quality as much as, you know, if you're really looking at the big picture and, and, and like I said, that's team culture. And I've seen some teams where even, you know, it's all fun and games in the interview, but once you get there, it's like, no, just, you know, let's, we're going to worry about that later. You know, we're, we're going to talk about angular two next year right now. Let's just fix all these bugs. Right. And it's like, wait a minute, we're on angular four now. Or like, what are you doing? You know, I've been on teams like this and like, I care and I want to help and I want to do everything that I can. But the problem is the morale after a while, like I'm not excited about what I'm doing anymore because I feel like I'm just kind of drowning in old, you know, tech debt. And I want to be working on the latest cool new stuff and keeping my skills sharp. And sometimes, unfortunately, the only way to do that is to find another team. 
and that's really sad. And so this is the other thing that if you are caring, if you care about uh, training and, you know, you care about how you, how you have this team culture, then what happens is because there are some developers and see, this is the thing where if you want someone to do something, you have to let them see how it benefits them. So if you're a developer and you're just a normal average regular developer and you don't have time to get involved in the community and do meetup talks because you got a family, right? Well, the thing is, the reason why you should consider doing that is because it actually literally will help you in your job and will help you make more money for your family, right? So in the same token, if you want companies to treat their developers better, then they then you want to let them know what happens is that as you, so you have maybe 10% of developers-ish, I'm making that number up completely off my head. So let's just say 10% of developers are really motivated. Like these developers are special. These developers have a spark. They care. They're paying attention. They're excited. You know what I'm talking about? You know, developers like that, right? They like totally get nerdy. They care. They work really hard because like they'll actually go on a Saturday and learn something because they're just nerds, right? And they really care. So those developers are worth more money, right? And then as you, as those developers grow and they're always learning and they're spending their own personal time to learn more things and do research and watch these podcasts and that kind of thing, then those developers deserve to be treated really well, right? And to ha- and to be able to work on that stuff. So what happens is if you have this type of, type of team culture, then you attract and keep these elite developers who are actually super, super excited about the work that they're doing. And you create them too. So it's that culture. And there are some developers and a lot of developers, and, and I see this especially on teams where it's just, you know, sit down and shut up and write your code, you know, hurry up. Um, what happens is, I mean, they're, they're, Usually they're paid well enough that they're still going to do their job and they're going to do the best they can every day, but they're not excited. And then you're losing all that productivity. So it's a, it's a, it's always a balance. We'll be back with our interview with Bonnie in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to take a quick moment to say thank you. Thank you for making time to listen to Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and or writing review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry that I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Bonnie Brennan. I want to touch on another quick thing related to some of the technical aspects of software. Do you find yourself more often on team rewrite or team refactor more often? I would usually rewrite, but I mean, I would keep it, I would just base it. Like I would look at the old code and kind of go off of it and rewrite it. Um, but yeah, I, I would usually rewrite it, but I would like use the old code as a map and, and kind of go side by side and, and, uh, not all at once, like intermittently, not, mm. not the whole entire thing. I don't want to like rewrite the the whole history. Thinking back to, you know, you're talking about different types of developers at organizations, you know, and thinking about reflecting on your own career journey, you know, you made a career shift at one point. And so I think we can make a safe assumption that most of the people listening to this particular podcast probably are already working in the industry or on their way to be working. I don't know why. Otherwise, if you're not, hi, I'm so curious what you find interesting on this podcast at the moment. So, but let's assume that some of the people that are listening know people who are maybe considering this type of career change to move into the, say, into the software development world, but they're unsure. And so for those that are listening, what advice could you offer them on how to have a a helpful conversation with those, with their friends or family that are, that might be kind of contemplating and seeking advice on this? Oh, this is such a good question. Okay. The first year is hard. 
the first year is very confusing and you're going to feel overwhelmed because every time you turn around, you got something new to learn. Like I, I learned HTML and CSS and then I'm like, what is this JavaScript now? I got to do this. What is SEO? Like there's so many things and it's very overwhelming, but you have to remember that the reason why you want to be a developer in the first place is because we get paid a lot of money for this code, right? So if you learn that your reward is financial security, which is so valuable, especially right now. So the reason why people pay us so much money is because this is hard. So buckle down. And and the thing is like, I, I actually never tried to be, to be a programmer until I was in my thirties. You know why? Because I thought that they were like some freaky geniuses. I thought that they were just smarter than the rest of us. And I didn't try because I just, I was intimidated. Right. And once I actually started kind of chipping away at it and like the more I learned, the easier it got, but that first year was rough. So if you can get through the first year and also even the people who are already doing code, but are not involved in the community, like don't, I, I, so many people say, I hear two things. Number one, I hear, I'm going to wait until I'm an expert to start teaching other people. That's not, no, 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 don't, it's backwards, right? You become an expert. You become considered an expert when you start teaching other people. And so you go ahead and start, you've got to do your first blog post or your first meetup talk. It's going to be tragic. It's fine. Get it over with, right? And then you get more practice and you get better as you go. And by the time you get big, nobody's going to go back and look. If you go back and look at the very first episode of NG Houston, it was tragic, right? I was so awkward. It's cute. But, but I mean, you don't have to worry about that. You just get started. And the other thing that I hear a lot um, that I really want to break down that misconception is a lot of people say, because English is not my first language and I'm not that confident about my English. Stop that. Because I, so many people say that to me, especially now that I live in Europe and I, I like, I, I understand them fine. Right. And don't worry about the grammar or having perfect English, because if you're doing a podcast, if you're doing a meetup and you're, you're out there teaching, right, you're offering somebody something for free. And if you have something valuable to teach, then they're not going to care about your public speaking skills or your, you know, or your accent. It's not like, don't let that hold you back because it's such a good experience. And it, you're, don't wait for your confidence. The confidence comes later, if ever, right. You don't, you don't have to worry about that, but it's just so good to, to participate in the community. It's very helpful for the community. It's helpful for your career. So yeah, that's my advice. Start now. And, and, and the only thing like you can be a total beginner asking total beginner questions. The only thing that I ask Two things. Number one, be nice. Everybody will help you if you're nice. And number two, don't criticize work that other people are doing, especially in open source. The, the way to get help, you know what? You have two choices. You can either say, uh, I'm trying to implement your code and it sucks and it's not working right. <laughs> well, nobody's going to help you. But if you say, hey, I really like your code and I'm trying to implement it, but I'm kind of struggling. Can you, can you tell me what I'm doing wrong? Then you're going to get a lot of help. So that tone really makes a huge difference. So as long as you're having that positive attitude and being grateful for the work that other people have done and not criticizing you that your code doesn't work. Don't say that. Right. As long as you're being nice, then people want to help you and you don't need to wait until you're an expert to start getting involved in the community now. You know, I think as you're reflecting on the, you know, that you're even your own initial public speaking experiences and writing blog postings of that nature, what advice? So let's say there's someone listening and they're thinking, okay, I'm all right, I can do that but what exactly am I going to talk about? What do I have to, I don't know enough yet. I'm not an expert enough at anything to be like, I'm, I know a lot about this one very specific thing that I can write a deep, really good art blog article about, or I can go on a podcast and talk about this type of paradigm or go speak somewhere. What advice could you offer them on how to think about the types of topics that would be helpful for the community to hear about from them? 
Okay, so uh, if I go back to the part about uh, not having English as a first language, I hear from a lot of people that are learning English and learning Angular at the same time. And that is very challenging because almost all of the tutorials are in English. So if you wanted to do a tutorial in any other language mm. other than English, that would be fabulous and super helpful. And it doesn't have to be expert, right? You don't have to do an advanced, it doesn't have to be advanced. Uh, one thing that I would say, well, two things. Number one, something that you found confusing in the beginning that you finally figured out, but you struggled with, explain how you how you got that. If it's some anything that you got stuck on for a while and you finally got it working and it was just hard, that would be a very good thing to focus on. Anything that you wish you had known when you first started or the best thing, anything that you're excited about. Because if you're talking about something that you're really excited about, that comes through and everybody else gets excited too. And that's a good talk. That's some really good advice there. Yeah, I'm always thinking back to a lot of my early blog posts and it was in the Ruby on Rails community was focused on like, there wasn't a lot of documentation yet. There wasn't a lot of other, there weren't many other blog posts yet. It was, it was very new community. So it was like, all right, well, I can't figure out how to do this through the documentation or reading the code. So I might as well at least write something and share it because I might need to reference this again at some point too. And so it was like, so then I started thinking about how I could write, if I were to Google for this type of problem, what would the what would an ideal answer be for the next person? And so, uh, I think that could be that was an wasn't an intentional thing when I first started off. That just ended up being a way that I started sharing and getting into blogging at the time. So, and then you get to I also find that developers sometimes might figure that out early on, and they're really excited about blogging or producing content early on, and then they kind of get to this certain sort of confidence level that they're thinking, well. Everybody knows what I know now. I'm now competent enough and I know, you know how to do things. What else do I have to say about new things? You know, it starts to kind of um, fade from their priority list maybe because now they're focused elsewhere or they're just thinking, well, now I'm in a different level of like what I should be able to understand and talk about. And so they, they find like another hurdle of wow, what could I possibly say now? You know, everybody knows what I know, right? Do you have any advice for those types of people? I'm actually speaking maybe for my own self as well. Yeah, because this is where, and you know, I've been in the Angular community for a long time and, and you go for, for a while, uh, for years, I was traveling all over the world, going to all these Angular conferences and I started running into the same people over and over again, which was awesome because they're my friends and I love them. And so I was very excited to see them, but you start to get the same people in the same talks over and over. And, and also, uh, believe it or not, if you have the same group of people for years that are that are traveling together and hanging out together, you start to get drama, you start to get, oh, this person doesn't like that person. And it's really exhausting, right? And what I find is when I whenever I kind of run out of that energy, I really turn around and realize, like for all the people, and this is really even even more powerful for the people who don't feel like they have anything to offer because they're beginners. If you've only like I've been doing Angular since, you know, Angular one, but if you've only been doing Angular for a year or or even six months, right? And you don't feel like you have anything to offer because you see all these other experts out there talking, all you have to do is turn around and realize there are new people starting Angular every day. There are new people starting their beginning programming every day. So if you look at someone, and especially uh, there's a, a program called Hack the Future. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm. Um, if not, I should put you in charge of the, I should put you in touch with them because it's a really great organization. They help refugees. They basically take refugees and teach them how to code, which is super helpful for them to, to build a new life. And I love this, right? So there are beginners who are really, I mean, imagine when you were first learning, right? How much you were stumbling around. And so if you only have a year of experience, 
for somebody else, that's huge. Then to that person, you are an expert, right? And so if you get burned out because you've been doing this for a while, or if you just don't feel like, I mean, either way, you just look for beginners who need help and you will find so many. And that's, and also it's just, it's, it's really rewarding because if you, some random beginner who doesn't know what they're doing has nothing to offer me. Right. But I want to help that person because I can, because it's easy for me. And that actually makes me feel really good. So then I feel better and then everybody's happy. So yeah, if you, if you need that, that positive energy and to be excited about the community again, go find someone who needs help and they will be very grateful because they're looking at you like, wow, I can't believe that you just solved my problem. I love you. And it's just, it just feels good, you know? So I think that's some really good advice there for people, you know, listening, if you're, whether you're a junior developer or you've you know, been in the industry for a while to, to think about the types of t- topics and the type, the way you can help. And there's a lot of different ways of participating. And I know like tools like, you know, online plat- communities like Angular Nation allow you to go on and a- answer people's questions is, is often a good way. Um, sometimes you can just kind of scour like what the topics are people finding challenging and be like, oh, I've seen like five people post about this topic over the last month. I'll write an article about that. And and then, so it's like, and then you can go back, Hey, I wrote an article in response to this and you can share it to that person. And that could be helpful too. Uh, that's, uh, that's something that I used to do in the past as well, Bear. But so as I kind of pivot to wrap up our conversation, Bonnie, uh, what non-software de- development related book do you find yourself recommending to people most often? Well, it, I would say because of the crazy current events in the world, um, that there's a book called The New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And it's not related to software at all, um, but it's just like when you look around and you see all of this, you know, war and and, uh, fascism and all this crazy stuff going on in the world and it's scary and there's, you know, human rights things that are going on. Like, how do you find peace with that, with all the anxiety, you know, where a lot of us are struggling with anxiety and depression and there's a lot of negativity out there and it's kind of scary. And like, how do you find, how do you how do you breathe at the end of the day? And so the book talks about that. He's very long-winded. It's a very long book, but basically uh, to give you this, the, the quick version, the answer is uh, mindfulness, mindfulness and meditation. Um, and I would absolutely, absolutely encourage you to learn more about mindfulness and meditation if that's something that you're not already familiar with. And the book talks a lot about how to do that. And for those listening, I'm going to assume, uh, I'm going to give Bonnie credit here. I think you have the most plants in the backdrop of anyone that I've, I've had on the podcast so far. So I'm hoping that is another element of helping you kind of survive these, these, these interesting times that we're living in. I definitely think house plants are a, an indication of inner peace. I don't know why I didn't know that, but yeah, it, I think it is. And out of curiosity, are you really good at keeping them alive or are you just really good at replacing them? You know, I'm I'm just so proud that you noticed them, Robbie, because I have actually never been good at that. And this is something that I've just developed and gotten good at over. And I can tell you the secret. It's aqua globes. This is my secret because they all required. See, I know we're out of time and I'm all excited now because I was killing plants my whole life. And they all require like they're picky about when you water them. You can overwater them and underwater them. And then I discovered these aqua globes, and now I have these big beautiful plants. But I'm still not really good at it. I just see when it's empty and I refill it, and it's like super easy. So get some aqua globes, put them in your plants. It's the most amazing thing, and then they'll look like this. I'm gonna have to look for that and include a link to that in the show notes as well because I am really good at replacing them. I have lots of plants at home. None of them at the backdrop of my office at the moment, but. That's a good backdrop there. So where can listeners Thank best you. follow your thoughts on software development online? Absolutely. Angular Nation.
And uh, like I said, it's free to join. You just need an email address, uh, put your email address in, and then uh, somebody will click an approval and you should get an approval very quickly and come in and join us and uh, talk to me, ask me questions, post. Yeah. Excellent. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable Body. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Oh, 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 oh.